So hey, we're, like I said, we're concluding the first part of our Genesis series, and as we've worked through Genesis 3, here's sort of what I've, I've tried to do for us. I've tried to like weigh the and live into the, the tension that we see in Genesis 3. So the author, I think he wants us to feel both the weight of our sin, right? So Genesis 3, you have the fall. The author is giving us just really brutal honesty about what happens in the garden. And he does this in such a way that he wants us to experience the weightiness of sin. But yet, at the same time, he communicates it in such a way that there's a tinge of hope even in the midst of the weightiness of our sin. All right? So he wants us to feel what we've lost at the fall. But at the same time, he wants us to experience the belief that all things will be restored, all right? Believing in this promise that's given to us in Genesis chapter three as you look at the punishment that's given to the serpent that the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan himself. And so guess what? We're gonna do the same thing again tonight. We're gonna try to live into this tension, all right? There's a way that we, I want you to feel and experience the weightiness of the end of Genesis chapter 3 here tonight, but I'm not going to leave you there, right? There's the hope of the gospel for all of us, and so we're going to live into that hope as well, all right? So if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, here's what we've just tried to undo in Genesis chapter 3, all right? So in verses 1 through 7, you have the actual fall, the first sin that takes place. So we believe the lies of Satan. The Bible tells us that we believe through Adam and Eve, and we fell through Adam and Eve along with them in the garden, making good things ultimate things. That's what sin is. We make good things ultimate things. It doesn't mean that deep down to the worst part of you that you're entirely evil. It means that we have this propensity to take good things, good gifts that God has given us in this world, and then loft them into the place that only God should have in our life. And when we do that, we fall and we turn from God, we betray him for what he's truly created us for, which is dependence on him, life through him, all right? Then we moved in verses 8 through 21 to look how God confronts sin. And so what we said is God, as the ultimate judge, the garden becomes like this courtroom from the very, in the very beginning. God is the ultimate judge, which we discuss is what's actually best for us, and he compassionately, he patiently, and he fairly responds to sin. And so tonight, we're going to look at the climax of all this, the result of all that's happened in Genesis chapter 3, which is humanity being banished from the garden. All right? Weighty, right? So in the other two weeks, um, we noted what was lost with the sin of Adam and Eve in the gardens, we discussed that there's broken relationship between both God and one another, right? They hide from God, and then they blame one another as a result of their sin. So immediately, you see fractured relationship between both God and man. You see that the image of God is marred inside of us, right? Like we are to image God in this world, but because of sin, we no longer image him in the way that we were intended to. The presence of sin has marred this image. It doesn't des destroy it completely, doesn't remove it completely, but it's not what it was before sin. It's disrupted the creation mandate, right? So pain overwhelms the promise of people for the woman. She has pain in her childbearing, 
You also see that perspiration and thorns disrupt the promise of place, which is what man is to do is to cultivate the ground and to produce and expand the garden. But what we see through Adam's sin is that the ground is cursed and that by the sweat of the brow of his own face, you will see him take and partake of the ground. Frustrated by uh, the sin also frustrates man and woman relationships. So God's original design is frustrated. So Rather than man and woman working together to fulfill this creation mandate that they would fill the earth and that they would rule it and subdue it, instead of them working together to do this, the original design has been frustrated. Woman longs for the desire, uh, desires the place of man, and man no longer leads in the way that he was intended to leave. And as awful as all this is, which is all awful, right? None of this sounds good. The worst of it is what we're looking at tonight. And it's the loss of God's presence. It's the loss of God's presence. So here's what I want us to do tonight, all right? I want to just take a brief moment and work through the loss of God's presence here in verses 22 through 24, all right? And then I want to spend the majority of our time looking at application, all right? So as we're closing the chapter, Genesis chapter 3, I want us to wrestle with what are our takeaways from Genesis 1 through 3? What is the author really wanting us to walk away with, the things that are to weigh heavy on our hearts and our souls as we move into Genesis chapter 4, right? So we're going to spend a lot of our time looking at this, and then we'll land the plane, and then I'll kind of give you a head up into our next series, all right? So... Let's start with the loss of God's presence. I'm going to read 22 through 24 because there's some things that I want to highlight here uh, for us to see it, and then we'll dive in. All right, so verse 22 says this. Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. All right? So the reason man's removal from the garden is such a big deal is because the garden is portrayed as the first temple on earth. All right? So later, whenever you see King Solomon, King Solomon is the son of David. David had this desire to build a place, a permanent dwelling place for God amongst his people as Israel has become this mighty nation. And as David desires to do this, he's been a man that has experienced battle. And so God says, you're not the one. Your son is going to be the one that built my place. And so as Solomon erects the temple, he builds this permanent dwelling place amongst God's people. It's built with a garden in mind, all right? So here's some ways that you see this. The entrance into Israel's temple as it's in Jerusalem was on the east, which is the same that we see in the garden. In verse 24, it says that the entrance into the garden was found on the east side of the garden. And the inner courtroom of the temple contained a lampstand that modeled the tree of life. The tree of life is in the midst, the middle of the garden. The way that they build the entire temple, they have this lampstand that looks like a tree, and it's to model the tree of life. So they're, in, they're just in picture 
picturing the garden as they are building the temple. And then as you're in the Holy of Holies, the curtains of the ark both possess, and the curtains and the ark of the covenant both possess cherubim that are stationed at the garden's entrance. So you heard in verse 24 that they have like the flame, the swords that are flames. It's like crazy stuff if you think about this. Well, they put this on the curtains in the Holy of Holies, the very place where God's presence dwells with his people, both on the curtain, the curtain as well as in the ark. And so, all right, the question is like, well, who cares, right? Like, why, why would that matter? Why does it matter that all the symbolism with the garden? Well, the purpose of the temple is that God's presence dwells as well as felt by God's people when they come and gather there, all right? And so God purposefully designs Eden as the place where he dwells with man here on earth. The whole temple that Solomon builds is erected in order to view this for God's people. And so when Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, they are driven away from the very presence of God. It's the first temple, the place that you come and you experience it. You saw this earlier in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve have sinned, God walks into the garden, and it's where he comes and he dwells, and it says it's where he walks with Adam and Eve. It's where they enjoy the very presence, physical presence of God with them. And as they're driven out of the garden, they're driven away from the very presence of God. And so out of everything that was lost at the fall, this is the worst thing that's lost. The presence of God is the worst thing out of everything that was experienced in the fall and lost at the fall. It's the presence of God that should be at the height of all of this for us. In fact, if you were to boil down the purpose of God's creation, it's that God dwells with man. If, if you ask the question, what's the reason that God did all of this? that he spoke all of creation into existence on the sixth day that he creates man and woman. What's the reason that he does all of this? It's because he wants to dwell with us. Not because he needs us, but because his love is so big and so good that was experienced between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit before the world was created that he creates this whole entire place so that we can experience the goodness of his love here in his physical presence. And at the fall... It's all lost. Physical presence of God is lost. There's two old dead guys. <laughs> they usually are the best ones that put things. So they express, I think, the loss of Eden and God's presence better than I could ever could. Okay, so here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. This other world is this experience where God dwells with us physically. Augustine says this, you made us for yourself, speaking of God, you, God, made us for yourself, and look, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is all angst over the loss of God's presence in our life. This is all the, the, the longings and desires that we feel in this world. It's all because the physical presence of God has been lost. And so look, when we crave acceptance and approval, when you desire purpose and meaning, 
when you're looking for fondness and affection in this world, when you have this deep longing and desire for wholeness and healing amongst so many other things, y'all. All of this is our longing, our soul longing for the physical presence of God because it's the culmination of all of these things. We are created to live in the physical presence of God where we find our wholeness, our completeness, our purpose, our meaning, and our worth in this life all with him. And so when we've lost it, We go searching for it in all these different places in the search that every single one of us have been on since we were born and brought into this world, this hole that we fill deep inside of us, that we've tried everything to fill that very thing. It's all the longing for the physical presence of God. So look, there's so many things to mourn in Genesis chapter 3. So many things. I mean, we've hit them. The peak of all of it is the loss of the physical presence presence of God, God dwelling with us. And if there's any other answer that you try to put into the blank of like, what does your soul long for most in this world, and it's not the dwelling of God with us, then you're just proving how deeply sinful and how affected you are by sin in your life that you place good things in the place of ultimate things. So in the midst of all this, all right, the loss of God's presence, we see at least a couple of ways that we are affected by all of this in verses 22 through 24. There's things that we need, to, at least two things we need to notice here, all right? So this is for our good, all right? The first one is this, that the removal from the garden is actually what's best for us. All right. Now you may be like, what? Like you just told us that the physical dwelling of God with man is what we're created for. It's what the cravings of our soul, it's the longings that go deep down inside of us. It's what we want. It's the thing that fills us, makes us whole, complete, healthy in this world. So if this is true, then how can be re- being removed from the garden be what's actually best for us? Well, Nancy Guthrie was really helpful for me um, this past week. She said we need to view Eden in terms of potential and not perfection, all right? So here's what she says. Eden is unspoiled, yet it's unfinished, all right? So you have the garden that's there, but it doesn't cover the expanse of earth. God is, the man is to work with God to expand the garden to where the image of God, the physical dwelling place of God, expands across all creation. She also says that it's unsullied, yet it's incomplete, So what's lost here is the potential that could be, but it's not the perfection of heaven, all right? So that's the first thing. The second thing we touched on last week, all right? So we talked last week that God just can't overlook sin, right? It would defy his character and his goodness. So goodness isn't the absence of justice, but the proper expression of it. So because God is good, Sin must be dealt with fairly and justly. So sin can't just be overlooked as if it didn't happen, right? So when he looks at us and he considers the actual place of his dwelling, he can't overlook our sin and just say, be like, yeah, I'm just going to treat like that didn't happen. And you can stay here. That's not how God can work because then he defies who he is. He's no longer good and just. And since sin has marred everything, 
God ensures that we don't live in this fallen state forever by casting Adam and Eve out of the garden, all right? If Adam and Eve were to eat of the tree of life, as we look at in verse 22, all of the brokenness that we just discussed, all of the effects that sin has had on us would be the actual eternal state of Adam and Eve for forever. Broken relationships, cursed ground, lost of purpose, marred image, no God. Look, this is hell. That's hell. And God saves humanity by removing Adam and Eve from the garden. And the removal from the garden is what's actually best and most loving thing that God could actually do for us because it ensures that we aren't, we aren't permanently in this broken state, but there's actually hope for this Genesis, Genesis 3 promise that there's someone that's coming that's going to deal with all of our deepest, darkest problems in this world and bring about restoration to us in our relationship with God. It's because we're removed from the garden that this actually is our, our future and our hope, all right? So from the beginning, God is working for your good. That's what you should see here, that when Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, it's actually what's best for us, and God is working for your good because he has bigger, brighter things in store for us, which is reconciliation with himself, it's what's best for us that he removes Adam and Eve. Yet, even though our removal from the garden is what's best for us, God's still torn up about it. That's what you see here in verse 22, all right? So verse 22 in ESV, I think, is rendered better, all right? So here's what it says. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, dot, dot, dot. Here's what, it's ha here's what happens. God can't finish the thought. The idea that Adam and Eve are driven out of his presence is so destructive to the very heart and soul of God that he can't, he can't finish his thought. It just moves into the very action that God takes in spelling out Adam and Eve from the garden. Here's what you should see. God isn't just neutral about you being his presence being physically removed from us. He's not neutral about it. He's not like, well, X happened, and so here's the actual result of it, and like, it's just how it is. That's not God how it responds to this. He so deeply loves you and cares for you that you are removed from his presence tears him up inside to the extent that he can't finish a sentence. That's how deeply the God of this universe cares for you. He's so deeply torn up about him not being able to dwell physically with you that he can't finish his words. And so Genesis 3 ends here. And the question I think that you're supposed to wrestle with as you move into Genesis 4 and the rest of the Bible is how is God going to fulfill his promise? You see, tinges of hope, Adam names Eve, Eve, which means the mother of all life. So he's believing in the promise that God gives in Genesis chapter 3 
that Satan will be finally and definitively dealt with by this promised one who is to come. But the question is like, how? How is God going to work all this out? And then you get the, the rest of the Bible, which is redemptive history that we just get to follow and see how God plays all this out before us. But you're just left with like, how? How is he going to do it? So that's how Genesis 3 concludes, all right? So here's, here's the good news. We're not done, all right? <laughs> so um, I want to just take the rest of our time and just unpack what I think are to be our big takeaways from Genesis 1 through 3, all right? What are we to do with this? How am I supposed to feel about all of this? Where am I to go? How do I respond? Like, these should be the things that are kind of going on in your heart and your mind. Like, what do we do? There's so many, all right? I can't hit all of them, but I do want to cover three, all right? So here's the first one. I think the first takeaway is this, that you take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. So um, we moved here two years ago from Louisville, Kentucky, and there's this bridge in Louisville that they call the can opener, all right? I got some pictures up here. All right, so the, the bridge is 11 feet, 8 inches in height. So it's just tall enough that an 18-wheeler feels like it can actually fit in under the overpass, all right? And so um, there's so many trucks. There's countless trucks that have gone and hit this bridge. And so they call it the can opener because you can see that it, like, just literally cuts off the top of the whole entire truck that's tried to go underneath it. And so what they're doing, they just passed like some bills for this like a year or two ago, that in response to this can opener, um, this bridge, they have, they're gonna install a height detection system. And so this height detection system, whenever you have an 18 wheeler that's coming towards the bridge, it's gonna have flashing lights and then it's gonna have a digital message that's put up, just point blank, easy to see for an 18 wheeler that like, you're not gonna clear this bridge right? So they're just trying to make it point blank obvious to any 18-wheeler that's about to try to attempt to go under the can opener that, look, you're not going to make it. And if you don't, if you continue down this, it's going to destroy your truck. Well, Genesis 3 is to serve for us as the warning sign. It's to be the flashing lights, to be the digital message that we should take sin seriously, all right? If we were to look at what all has happened in Genesis 1 through 3, we should it should scream out at us that sin will destroy you. All of the effects of sin, all of the things that we've seen God tease out for us in chapters one through three, it screams at us that you don't play with sin. So here's some of the stuff that goes on in our heart and our mind when we think about our sin, the way that we underplay the consequence and the seriousness of sin in our life. You have, we have thoughts like this, well, I've got this under control, right? Like, it's just something that I dabble in. It's really not that big of a deal. We say things like this. It's not really hurting anybody. Like, I do it in private, and so people don't, like, it's not hurting anybody else. It's just something that is happening in the dark, or it's just going to happen one time, right? Like, there's a person that I really enjoyed, like me going to be intimate with this person just this once. It's not hurting. It's mutual. They want it. I want it. It's not hurting anybody. But the Bible speaks very directly in how we are to handle sin. 
It speaks very directly in how we are to view the consequences of it and the severity of it. You see in Colossians 3 verse 5, it says this, Therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. In essence, it's saying don't dabble with sin. Don't play with sin. Don't buy into the lie that by just participating once that the consequence of your disobedience isn't going to be all that severe. Don't buy into the lie that God's holding out on you with whatever the temptation of your heart is, the desire of your flesh to go and partake in. It won't fulfill you. It's not going to follow through with the promise that it's trying to deliver. And so look, the question would then be, well, then how do we fight sin? Like, how do we put it to death? We fight sin with sin, all right? It's an acronym, all right? You fight it with, I know it's kind of cheesy, but whatever. Scripture, intercession, or in other words, prayer. And then the last one is neighbor or community, all right? So I was a communication major in college, and I had to take a course called The Art of Debate. I don't remember much from this class, but I remember this one thing. It said, if you want to have a chance to win a debate, one of the things you have to know, you absolutely have to know, is you have to know what's true. You have to know the facts and you have to know truth. In the Gospel of John, Jesus describes Satan as the father of all lies. Here's what's true about Satan, all right? He is a master at manipulating and coercing our desires. The Bible tells us that he is like this prowling lion, and what a lion does is it surveys its prey, it finds and studies, it studies and finds its weaknesses, and then it pounces on them. And Satan is the same way with each and every single one of us. He knows you sometimes better than you know yourself. He knows your desires, he knows your longings, he knows your wants. You can see this all the way back from Genesis chapter 3. When he comes into the garden, he has studied Adam and Eve in such a way that he knows what to step into and to tempt in order to get them to fall. And he does the same thing with you and me. And what you, see in the God, what you see throughout the scriptures is that the way that you stand up, if you just want a chance to stand up against this master of lies, it's essential that you know truth. You must know the truth. He knows you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows where you're going to be tempted to step up and fail. And if you are going to fight the master of lies, then you must know truth which means you have to know your Bible. You need to know the scriptures. Look at Psalm 19 with me, all right? Verses seven through 11, it should be on the screen. Here's what the Bible says about the truth of God. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is an abundant reward." Look, if you want a chance 
to fight against the father of lies. You must know truth. You see this in the life of Jesus himself. As he's in the wilderness being tempted by the evil one, what does he do in response to the lies of the evil one? He quotes the Bible. He fights lies with truth. And so look, if you want a chance to fight sin in your life, you must devour your Bible. You must read it. We have Bible reading plans that we're trying to work through together as a church. Like if you've fallen back on it, look, it's okay. There's grace. But don't stop. Like get back into it. Like immerse yourself in the scriptures. You need to know the truth. You can listen to it. If reading is hard for you, like it is for me, like I have four kids trying to be in my home and sit down to read a book, even the Bible itself, like it's really hard, right? There's always somebody that's asking or begging or pleading for something in our house. It's hard to sit down and read. So listen to it. There's Bible apps, the Dwell app, the Streetlights app. If you like some R&B music to it, like Streetlights is the one for you. You can listen to the Bible. You can immerse yourself in it as you're driving to your work or back home. Wherever you're going, your commute, you can listen to the Bible. You can sing it. There's, there's really good music out there where people are trying to put words to the Bible that you can sing it and memorize it. You can pray it. You don't close your Bible after you read the Bible and then wonder what do you pray about. You use the scriptures that lead you in how you pray. You pray about a lot of the same things. Sometimes you feel like you get in a rut. If you need different words or different ideas on how to pray those things, you don't close the Bible. You pray your Bible. Look, if you want to fight sin, you fight it sin with Scripture. You need to know the truth. You need to know your Bible. That's the first one. The second one is intercession or prayer. Ephesians 6, 18 says this. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. All right, so Ephesians 6 this is the passage of the armor of God, all right? So he works through all these different things that you put on in order to fight sin. And everything that comes before verse 18 is defense against sin, which go read it. It's really helpful. It'll help you give like some great imagery to what you should be thinking through and how you fight sin as well in your life. But prayer is the offensive, all right? All the other things that come before verse 18 are the things that you put on in defense against the evil one. Verse 18 is you going on offensive against the evil one. And so what you do is you pray in order to fight towards and against Satan in your life. So it starts with like recognizing your own life, your own propensities, the things that you long, the things that you want, the things that have the deepest effect on your life, you look at those, you pray in response to it that the Holy Spirit would work in tandem with you as you fight against that very sin in your life. You don't just stand there passively waiting for the evil one to come to attack you. You take and you go on the offensive. How do you go on the offensive? You pray. You go against the evil one. You fight to see the kingdom of God advance in this world. We see that the kingdom of God cannot be overcome by the kingdom of the evil one. How does that happen? We pray. And then third is your neighbor or community. So as we saw in Genesis 3, sin isolates. What happens in response for Adam and Eve when they sin? They try to cover themselves. And then when they hear God coming into the garden, they run and hide. 
They isolate themselves from God. They isolate themselves from one another. So how do we combat the isolation of sin? You confess it. You share your sin, your propensities towards sin with someone else. Look, in John chapter 3, Jesus says that everyone who does evil hates the light and hides their sin. In contrast, those who live by the truth come to the light and they expose their sin to other people. Look, if you want to destroy the power of sin in your life, you have to expose it. You confess it to other people in your life. It's, it's scary, right? To open yourself up, to be so vulnerable, to let someone know the things that you may want to hide from other people because you're embarrassed. Sometimes you're confused about where to move forward and how do you get out of this rut, this what feels like the entanglement of sin that's enslaved you once again. How do you defeat it? You expose it. You take it to someone else. Look, another believer, the proper response is that we should be gentle and patient and kind because we are all in the same boat. We are all sinful people. We have all fallen before a righteous God. So there's no, none of us should stand on some pedestal looking down on another person because of sin that's in their life. You do too. So how do we fight it? We expose it to one another. And when we bring it into the light, John chapter 3 says that by exposing it, ultimately to God himself, right? That's the ultimate light. But also exposing it to one another, it breaks the chain of sin in your life. It's scary, yes, but look, it's what's best for you. It's how you fight sin in your life. So the first takeaway, Genesis 1 through 3, is that you take sin seriously. You fight sin with sin, with scripture, with intercession, and with your neighbor or community. The second one is this. In response to Genesis 1 through 3, main takeaway is that you trust in Christ completely. All right, that seems like an obvious one, all right? But look at this. God's punishment for Satan is that he will be crushed by the seed of the woman. And this is the promise of the coming Savior or Messiah. It's what everybody looks forward to throughout the rest of Scripture until the New Testament hits. And the one who will deal with Satan's sin and death once for all, he is coming. The promise of Genesis 3 is going to happen. And look how amazing our God is, all right? The presence of God is not only the objective of God's mission throughout all of redemptive history, but it's also the means by which he does it, all right? So how does God defeat our greatest enemy? He defeats it with his presence. So look, you go to the Gospel of Luke and what you find is that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Genesis chapter 3. There's a genealogy that happens in Luke chapter 3. The way that it transpires, it ends in verse 38 that Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. He's the promised one in Genesis chapter 3 when God speaks and places the consequence of sin on the serpent that his head will be crushed by the coming seed of the woman. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Then in the gospel of Matthew, he reveals to us that God put on human flesh. Here's what Matthew 1, 22 through 23 says. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. 
See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Why? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. Everything that you've longed for, all the purpose and the promise and the hope that we've held on to in Genesis chapter 3 for the reconciliation that we all long for with God, whether you want to profess it or not, is found in Jesus himself. The promise of Genesis 3 is fulfilled by God coming and making his presence dwell with man. God puts on human flesh He goes and does what you can't do for yourself. He comes in the physical presence of God. The perfect, invisible, the perfect, perfect image of the invisible God is what Colossians 1 says comes and he does. He climbs the tree of death for you and me. He defeats Satan, sin, and death. How? With his presence. So look, you trust him completely. I was um, with Shepard, our youngest. Um, He just woke up from his nap right before we came here. He's at the top of our stairs on the second story, just calling for me. And so I I walk up, like he's kind of like the whiny, not hadn't got the fullness of his nap out yet. And he's just calling, hold you, daddy, hold you. Meaning hold me, right? Um, And so I go up to the top. And before I even get to the top stair, he just like thrusts all of his weight towards me like all the stairs, like fully the rest of the way. But he trusts me completely to grab him, that I'm gonna capture him before he falls down the stairs. This is what we do with Christ. It's not a, I'm gonna give Jesus part of my life and trust him with part of my life, and then like the rest of this, I'm trying to figure out and I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm gonna walk with, Jesus died for me, so I'm gonna live with him. No, that's not what God's calling you to. Yes, God has come and physically dealt with your deepest, darkest issue with his physical presence, but he doesn't do it so that you'll live for him. He does it so that you'll live with him. The Holy Spirit comes, and he's the greatest gift that you get in this life. You get to walk with Jesus here and now. How does it happen? You thrust yourself on him completely. There's nothing else that you turn to in this life. He's the promised one of Genesis chapter 3. What all of human history has been looking forward to, the climax is found in Jesus. And he deals with her deepest issue with his physical presence. And then thirdly, you long for heaven expectantly. Genesis 1 through 3. You see the Bible begin with God's dwelling, dwelling, his, his dwelling presence with man. God's mission throughout the rest of the Bible is accomplished through his presence, as we just discussed. And then look, the Bible is fulfilled with God's presence. The very end. What we experience in part right now, so I just shared that we have the Holy Spirit when we trust in Jesus completely. God gives us the Holy Spirit, so there's no longer a temple that we go to to experience the presence of God. God's presence dwells with us wherever we go now. We are made God's temple. But look, This is only in part what we are to experience. 
The Bible tells us that the Old Testament, all the people in the Old Testament, they long for the day that you and I get to experience now, that the Holy Spirit dwells with us and we take him wherever we go. But look, it's still not complete. This still isn't the climax of all that God has placed before us of what he's going to do in this world. You get Revelation 21.3 that says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. Physical presence. They will be his peoples. Speaking of every tribe, nation, and tongue. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. Look, the Bible promises that God will physically dwell with us again in the new heavens and the new earth. What you see in Revelation 21 and 22, in this new heaven and new earth, there is no temple. What the Bible tells us is that the Lord their God and the Lamb are their temple. There's no place, there's no physical place that you have to go to to experience the very presence of God because he's there. You have the tree of life that's there in the middle of of the whole entire new heaven and new earth. And it's giving life to all that are there. The curse is no longer as all things are made completely new. And the image of God is restored as we see in Revelation 22, that all can see his face and their name is forever written on his people. Shining forth, the image of God is restored and it's complete and it'll never be taken away again. So look, we don't look back on Genesis 1 through 3 wishing we could return to what was there. It was best for us that we are ushered out of the garden in the sinful state that we're in. And now we look forward to Revelation 21 and 22 with anticipation. The desire of your heart should not be to go back but to go forward. That you are waiting expectantly for Jesus to come back again. And look, we're entering into the season that the church practices this year after year after year. It's called Advent. Advent is a time that as the church, we remember God's promise is fulfilled in sending Jesus the first time. And so we look back on that with remembrance that God keeps his promises. But then we also look forward to anticipation when Jesus comes back again. We long for the day when the new heavens and the new earth come with Jesus once again and that the new heavens and the new earth come and overtake this world and that we get to live with him in his physical presence for forever. And so look, we're ending Genesis chapter three at the point in time that we are with very, very uh, distinct purpose, all right? I wanted us to feel the tension of Genesis chapter three that we deal with the sinfulness that all of us experience in this world, holding on to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and ending Genesis chapter three in the time that the church practices the remembrance of Jesus and looking forward with anticipation to where heaven comes to earth and we get to dwell with God physically forever. So the next series that we're stepping into, we're calling the thrill of hope, all right? The thrill of hope. The darkness and the weightiness of sin that weighs heavy on us in Genesis 1 through 3 is dealt with because we have the hope of Jesus. And so for the whole Advent series, we're just going to gaze at Jesus. The thrill of hope 
for every single one of us that calls on the name of Christ that the new heavens and the new earth are going to come here and the very thing that we are created for, which is to dwell with God physically, will actually come to fruition and it will be with him forever. And so we're going to gaze at this Jesus that's the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis chapter 3. And so here's where we're going to look at. We're going to look at Jesus, who's the eternal God. He's not this just created person that achieved godness. Rather, he's always been God. He's part of the Godhead. And so we're going to look at this Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus, who's perfectly man, fully God, fully man, so that he could deal with all of our wickedness, all of our sin, and make us completely right through his resurrection. We're going to look at this Jesus, who's the righteous king, the one who can actually administer justice and goodness the way that it's meant to be experienced here in this world that all of us desire for. This Jesus who's the good shepherd who cares for your soul. This Jesus who's the great high priest who stands before the Father and he's the one that is administering his grace to you. He's standing up for you. He's saying, I've done everything that they couldn't do for themselves. All of what the punishment of sin that was deserved for their sin, I have taken on. I've been the ultimate sacrifice. You can't deal with justice with them anymore because it's finally been dealt with me. Then you have Jesus who's the promised Savior, the one that everyone has been looking forward to all has culminated in Jesus and when he comes back again he's going to fulfill the final deepest desire that all of us have that's to be with God himself so we want to long for the experience of heaven expectantly and we're going to do that for all of the Advent season as we look and gaze at Jesus Genesis 1 through 3 is supposed to feel heavy. It is. The author writes it that way. And we've tried to live into the tension. It's not this weightiness without hope, but it's the weightiness of what has happened because of our sin, all that it's fractured in this world, but the hope that God is a good God who's going to work on our behalf. And so in light of all of this, the presence of God, the thing that you're created for, should remind us that we take sin seriously, that we trust in Christ completely, and then we long for heaven expectantly. Those should be our takeaways, all right? So let's live into them. Leave this place not defeated, but hopeful. They have a good God who loves you, who's working for your good, He's going to bring it all to fruition when he comes and sees you face to face. Let's pray.